If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 this morning, and the text is also printed on the next page of the bulletin for you. You may have noticed a bit of a theme in uh, some of our liturgy, the songs, and um, things that we've been doing this morning so far and will continue to do. It's a resurrection-themed. It's like Easter in July. Uh, So 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross, was buried, and then he rose from the dead. That's the basic story of uh, of the gospel. That's the the truth of the gospel. Um, C.S. Lewis... Probably you're familiar with his name, at least, if not his writings. He's got a little book called Miracles. I think it might be a collection of his essays uh, where he says this. For the apostles, talking about the early church, the apostles, um, to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they've seen the resurrection. So let me just point out something that should be probably obvious to you. Um, Not everyone who's heard that good news believes it. Not everybody who's heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ believes it. Resurrection is hard for people to believe, partly because it doesn't really fit very neatly with our experiences. When people die, they, they tend to stay dead. It um, doesn't really fit with our worldview, but, but also uh, it's difficult for people to believe, maybe more significantly, because people don't want to believe it. People don't want to believe it. If Jesus is alive from the dead, according to the gospel, then it changes everything. It isn't just some nice idea. It's a historical reality. It's true for all people everywhere. In fact, it's the historical reality that changes everything else in the world, changes everything else in history. So Leslie Newbigin said, the resurrection cannot be any part of history unless it's the center and turning point. Unless it's the center and turning point, which it is. And that is deeply unsettling. The resurrection, it overthrows my understanding of God. It overthrows my understanding of all reality. Whole philosophies and religions and worldviews are, are undone and unraveled and overturned by the resurrection, and that's not very comfortable. The resurrection topples my supreme agenda for my life, all my desires, all my plans, all my paths. They're all interrupted and redirected by it. Tyrants, you can see this throughout history, tyrants suppress the truth of the resurrection in order to maintain power. All sorts of people, not just people who are in charge, not just tyrants, not just dictators, but all sorts of people mock the idea of the resurrection. They deny it. They lie about it. They pretend it away. They even reject and imprison and kill people who proclaim the resurrection because the resur- resurrection implies that we have been wrong about the most important things. Even Christians often neglect the resurrection because we're too busy, too focused on living for ourselves most of the time to be bothered by the total upheaval that the resurrection brings into our lives. So so by nature, people don't want to believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Nevertheless, it happened, and God himself calls you to believe it. He calls you to trust him through it. He has raised Jesus from the dead for your good. 
it's good news that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, and whether you understand that or not, you're called to believe it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we uh, make our way into this part of John's gospel. We will talk about the resurrection for a few weeks, but here we go, starting off in chapter 20. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful to us, that you would send your spirit to us to help us to understand your word, to see you and trust you through it, to be changed into the likeness of Christ our Savior by it. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter. And reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went in to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw And believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, this is not a sensationalistic, overly dramatized account of the resurrection. Hollywood probably wishes that the precise moment were recorded for us. We get some ideas what it was like so they could see some cool, you know. If you see it in a movie, right, you're going to see some cool CG effects uh, to show the divine power at work reanimating Jesus. That's not what you get. This account really isn't impressive in any worldly sense. Jesus doesn't even show up yet. He does later in the chapter. We'll we'll look at that. But but it's a really unimpressive account. It also doesn't address any, most of our questions, really, about the nature of what happened. We've got all sorts of scientific questions, all sorts of philosophical questions about how this happened and how this could be possible and what does it mean. We would love to have these questions answered so that we could make sense of it all, so that we could agree with it. You don't get an explanation of the physics or the metaphysics of resurrection or you don't get a discourse on how such miracles really are possible, however unlikely they may be. Those are the kinds of things that we say would satisfy our rational judgment so we can make informed decisions about whether or not to believe the resurrection. But instead, we get a matter-of-fact eyewitness report that just rings of authenticity for all of its straightforward simplicity and the details that are included. So right off the bat, you have the startling honesty of the fact that women were the first ones to discover the miracle of the resurrection. Maybe that doesn't surprise us today, but it would have been a surprise back then. Every gospel writer records this, uh, the fact that the women were the first ones at the tomb early that morning, and each gospel writer makes a point of mentioning Mary Magdalene in particular. So Craig Blomberg has a book called The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, and he says this, an inventor of fiction, 
somebody who's just writing this to sort of make it up, make up a good story that's believable, an inventor of fiction trying to commend belief in Jesus' resurrection, would be unlikely to have created women as the first witnesses, much less have focused almost exclusively on one who was formerly demon-possessed and who could therefore have been considered out of her mind when she first reported such news. A patriarchal culture would not have given her words nearly as much credence as if they had first come from the male apostles. In some Jewish legal contexts, women's testimony was considered inadmissible. So if you're trying to convince people in the first century, back then, if you're trying to convince people in that culture that it's reasonable to believe that you've seen something of evidence regarding, that you're an eyewitness, if you're trying to convince them that it's reasonable to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you would probably try to hide the embarrassing part about the women rather than leading off with it. You just wouldn't mention it. The only reason to record it is if that's just the way it really happened and you're concerned to bear truthful witness about it. Mary really did see these things. And at first, she misunderstood what she was seeing. At first, she misinterpreted what was in front of her eyes. She wasn't some gullible idiot who just wanted so badly to believe that Jesus wasn't dead anymore. It wasn't like people in her primitive, superstitious culture automatically jumped to the conclusion that missing bodies meant they'd been raised from the dead. She ran. She went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's how he refers to himself in this gospel. So she went to Peter and John, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So our best guess is that she suspected grave robbers, but basically she was totally stumped hadn't entered her mind that Jesus would be raised from the dead. She wasn't expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. That didn't fit neatly into her worldview or her understanding of the biblical narrative. She probably knew the Old Testament scriptures. She probably knew that they talked about resurrection, but this just didn't fit with anybody's understanding of that, not hers. Neither she nor the disciples cooked up a story of the resurrection because in their minds it would explain, it would totally link Jesus to all the Old Testament prophecies. It would just make sense of everything and how he's, he's really the Messiah. Mary didn't know what was happening. And anytime you say that to other people, that's a, that's a bit embarrassing to admit. And here it is recorded in the Gospels. The only reason to record it is that that's just the way it really happened. And you're concerned to tell truthful witness about it. So we don't know what was running through the minds of Peter and John, but they bolted. They heard that news. They took off running for the tomb. Maybe they didn't trust Mary's report. Maybe they were going to look for clues, thought they could see something that maybe she'd missed. Maybe they didn't think. They just acted in their grief and their anger. I mean, what would you think if a few days after your friend's body was buried, someone rushed in to tell you that the body had been exhumed and was missing and we don't know where it is? When you run to check it out, what do you hope to find? What do you fear to find? Maybe it flashed through their minds something 
Jesus said about rising again from the dead, maybe. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, the linen cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in with the the burial spices. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went in, went into the tomb. So Herman Ritterboss says that this is characteristically graphic and realistically precise. It's just good reporting about what happened, right? Why on earth would John record this? I ran faster. I got there first. I stopped outside. Peter rushed in. There's all kinds of theories about, like, why he says this. I pretty much reject any of them that put John and Peter in competition with one another. I was the faster one, and then I was maybe more respectful, and Peter just lumbered on in. Like, it's, that's not, um, it's not what he's doing. I, maybe it's like he's saying, I got there and secured the perimeter and waited for him. I didn't go inside. I didn't tamper with any evidence till my, till my partner got there, too, and we could see these things together. Maybe he's deferring to Peter's corroborating testimony. Peter says in Second Peter, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. Maybe, maybe he's just pointing out with humility that even though he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how he identifies himself all the time. That's a good way for us to identify ourselves. We're the, we're the ones Jesus loves. That's the best word that can be said about us. Even though that's true for him, he doesn't have some sense of entitlement to the, the honor of first discovery. We might assume that if he was the beloved disciple, this story would be all about him. And he'd have the place of pride in the story, but he isn't the first one into the tomb, nor does Jesus make his first appearance to John. You can be beloved of Jesus and not have the most impressive personal testimony, the personal story of how you came to faith. So, so the only good reason I can think for John to record this is if it's just the way it really happened. And he's, he's concerned to bear truthful eyewitness testimony about what really happened. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So I guess that probably rules out the theory of grave robbers. That's what most commentators think. Um, Because grave robbers would have taken those linens. That's, that's why you go into a grave, to take stuff like that. Those are expensive linens, not to mention all the costly spices that are bound up in them. They certainly wouldn't have taken the time during their heist to unwrap a dead body. They would have carried it all out and dealt with it later. You're in a hurry not to be discovered as you're committing a crime, which was punishable by death in those days, actually, grave robbery. Um, they wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap, and they certainly wouldn't have taken the time to, to fold and place the, the face cloth. Something else happened. It isn't all spelled out. It isn't all reconstructed. It isn't all run through in a way that explains, makes complete sense of everything. You get the picture, though. You get the picture. John, who had reached the tomb first, he went in and he saw and he believed. John was standing there now inside the empty tomb, just standing there looking at reality. And he believed the reality 
You believe the reality of the resurrection. That's what you should do with reality. You should believe it. You shouldn't resist it. No matter how unsettling it might be, no matter how it might overthrow all your preconceptions about everything. John believed it. John believed it because he sure didn't understand it yet. That's what he says. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The belief came before the understanding. The resurrection didn't fit neatly into John's worldview as if, you know, maybe this is how we think of it. Usually you've got this hundred-piece jigsaw puzzle, nice picture that you've got, and he's got 99 of the pieces together, and it's just that one, just that one piece that, um, you know, once you've got the whole picture together, you can pretty much see, yeah, this is going to be an orange piece, and it's going to be shaped like this, and that's, that's the piece I need. That's the piece I'm going to look for. And he was just so excited to see that last piece click into place when, when he discovered that the resurrection was true. That's not the way it, it was with him. The resurrection blew up his worldview. It was more like the puzzle pieces were scattered, scattered all over the room, and, uh, and he's given one beautiful corner piece to start putting the whole thing together with. That's where you start a puzzle, right? It's the corner. <clears throat> he couldn't help but believe it, but he couldn't really take it all, all in yet. It didn't quite make sense to him, so they just went home. It's kind of ridiculous. They, they went home, and you see this with a, a few of the, the accounts of what happened with them and Jesus after the resurrection. They, they're scratching their heads. They don't understand. They don't do what we think would be the impressive and grand thing to do, is go start proclaiming it everywhere. Uh, it's not the grandest picture of the disciples getting started, but it's true. And, it's, and they're not afraid to say that they just went home because they didn't understand it. Belief in the resurrection makes us able to say things like that about ourselves, to confess what is true, even though I don't understand it, even though I might not like it. I can confess what is true. Uh, In spite of how it makes me look. So when I was in high school and uh, and in college, before I believed, um, I actively resisted. It was one of those antagonistic atheists that you're sort of thankful for in your life because they always want to talk about God, how much they they hate him and think he doesn't exist. Um, That's what I was like, actively resisting faith. I insisted that the resurrection was a stupid thing to believe. I was actually obsessed with debunking it, getting into arguments, showing, showing it to be unhistorical or implausible or whatever, sought out arguments with my Christian friends about it in high school and college, mocked their faith, made fun of them. Because it was so uncomfortable, because if the resurrection's true, if the gospel's true, it's a total threat to my way of life. It turns everything upside down. And one of the big things for me was that I thought pretty highly about myself. I thought I had the world figured out pretty well. Being a high schooler and college student, that makes total sense, doesn't it? <clears throat> I thought I was pretty smart. I thought I had all the right ideas about reality. All of that would be chucked out the window if I believed the resurrection. And then one day, I just started believing it. And I couldn't explain it. It's just that I noticed one day I stopped resisting 
and started believing. And it defies my explanation. Uh, I didn't figure everything out before I believed. I didn't have a complete understanding of the gospel before I believed. I didn't have all my, my questions answered in a way that was satisfactory to me before I believed. I wasn't able to hold on to my worldly reason and continue to be impressed with my intellect, with my own judgment, and say, of course, resurrection makes perfect sense. It's a natural thing to believe anyone in the right mind would do that. Somehow, thank God, my resistance was overthrown, and I believed. And then, then I started growing in my understanding. And I'm not done learning yet, and I'm pretty sure the Bible describes that as a normal process for us, for all of us. It's kind of embarrassing to admit that you believe, but you don't have all the answers. That you're still confused, that you're still growing in your understanding of the scriptures and the gospel. You don't have it all together yet. You believe, but you don't have all the answers. John That's embarrassing. He's obviously more concerned to tell the truth about Jesus than he is to paint himself in a wonderful light. And that's the kind of good change that the resurrection makes in you. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the, the wrongness in the world, all the sin, the rebellion in the world, all the death in the world as a result of our sin, all of it's being overthrown. Everything about the old world Is being overthrown, so you don't have to cling to it anymore. You don't have to cling to your old ways. You don't have to be omniscient and have everything figured out and have everybody else know that you got everything figured out. You don't have to to be that way. You don't have to be the judge of what is rational or possible. Make yourself the judge of God. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be the most amazing uh, person. You don't have to have the most amazing story that makes you look awesome. You can be beloved of Jesus. You can trust in him. You can believe that God raised him from the dead. You can celebrate the good news that he's making all things new and accept the fact that you'll just have to spend the rest of your life growing in your understanding about what that means and the tremendous significance of of it all, of, of the resurrection. The resurrection changes the way that you relate to God in ways that I still don't understand fully. The resurrection changes the way you relate to God. It leaves you with no choice but to change. Either you believe before you understand, or you go on fighting the most spectacular thing that ever happened. It's the central turning point in history. And God calls you to believe it. And that'll be the true path to understanding, he says. He says it everywhere in the scriptures. Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. It's faith. It's trusting him. It's a relationship with him. That's where wisdom starts. That's where you start to get understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And then he'll, he'll guide your path. He'll give you understanding. He'll give you wisdom. John didn't understand what he believed yet. But the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, it says, was a hint that this was the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. 
a new creation. Genesis 1, like Freddie read in our Old Testament reading. In the first beginning, God created by his word. He spoke light into the world. He celebrated it as good. In the darkness of evening, gave way to the light of morning, and it was the first day of the world. John 20, you've got echoes of John 1. John's writing with these themes in mind. God made a new creation by his word, Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. He's rising from the tomb at dawn on the first day. So when the, so when the sun comes up on Sunday, on resurrection day, we worship. Everything's been made new. It's a new heavens and a new earth has begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a new world. It's a new creation. It's made everything new for us. This, he, he didn't understand these things. He, he believed something that would lead him to understand these things eventually. <clears throat> the Spirit would help him connect those dots later, John. Uh, we know John connected the dots because he wrote the, the gospel with these themes. John didn't understand what he believed yet, but, but Jesus, the great high priest, he's atoned for the sins of the world. He saw it, he believed it, didn't quite understand it yet. Didn't see all the strands of the Old Testament coming together here, like Leviticus 16, where the old high priest, Aaron, is supposed to go into the tabernacle, into the holy presence of God on the Day of Atonement, wearing a linen coat, linen undergarment, linen sash around his waist. He's all bound up in linen, this high priest, with a linen turban on his head. To make atonement for the sins of the people in the most holy place, the most holy place, where it really meant, it meant death to go there if you weren't on good terms with God. No one else was allowed to go with him. That was made explicit. He goes alone into that holy place. And he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice. He puts it on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant between the two angels. And then when he's done with his work, he takes off his linens and he leaves them there in the tent of meeting. In John 20, you've got Jesus. He was all bound up in linens. He was in an unused tomb, a new tomb. No one had been laid there yet. No one else was with him. No one had gone there yet. The body of Jesus lay on the slab. He's the perfect offering for our sins. Until he got up and he removed the linens. He folded up his face cloth. It's the kind of thing you do when you're done with your work. And he left them there, the symbol of his completed work, between the two angels who sat on either side of the slab where he had been laid. We'll see that detail a couple of verses later. Again, the Spirit would help John connect these dots later in marvelous ways. John didn't understand what he believed yet, but Jesus had just reversed the curse that rests on this whole world. He had just crushed the power of the enemy, the devil whose, whose power is death. He just wiped that out. He just secured glorious eternal life for his people. He'd, he'd restored them to a relationship with God that will last forever. He just changed everything. The beloved disciple believed, but he didn't understand yet. And so can you. Amen. Let's pray about that. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would 
Help us, we believe. We pray that you would help our unbelief. We pray that uh, through the gift of your spirit, you would grant us to believe in the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we pray that you'd help us to understand and to comprehend with all of the saints the, the dimensions of your love that are seen in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel. We pray uh, that you would not leave any one of us in the darkness, but that the, the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ would dawn on each one of us through the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would help us to be those who, um, even though we don't fully understand yet, even though we're growing in our knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel, that as we go from here, we'd be uh, becoming more and more the kind of people who do delight to see what it is that you've done in the gospel, to connect the dots of the scriptures, not just for ourselves, but for our friends, to help others um, to, to come to faith and an understanding of Jesus, and especially his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.